You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things have happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So for the month of October, we're looking back to move forward. Uh, And the way we're doing that is sort of keeping the Protestant Reformation in the rearview mirror and looking at what were some key doctrines that the Protestant Reformation restored to the church. And then looking now to say, are some of those same teachings in need once again of being restored and renewed in the church today? Uh, and so last week I shared with you a few findings from this survey called uh, the State of Theology, uh, a survey done every two years by Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries, and, and it polls not just people who would classify themselves as evangelical Christians, but, but unbelievers as well, and says, Let, let's look what they say about their response to certain statements. Uh, So to kind of start off and to say, well, is this really a need today? Are we slipping from some of the key doctrines of the faith? Well, let me share with you three different statements. Uh, Each of these were part of the survey, but they reflect something about the understanding of the Bible today. Here's the first statement. Simply, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. So they put that question out there. Uh, 26% of those who would describe themselves as Christians said they strongly agreed with that. Another roughly 18% or so said they somewhat agree with that. So you might look at that and say, well, that's not too bad. Maybe like 53% of, of people who say they're Christians. But notice only less than a third strongly agreed. So that means we've got a big pocket of people who are are growing here thinking the Bible is not really literally true. Uh, It has truth in it, but it's not completely overall truthful. Here's a second statement is this. The Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. So 53% of evangelical Christians said they agreed with that that the Bible has, is accurate in all that it teaches. So over half. Now, it still is a little troubling, but then you have to break that figure down 
out of that 53%, only about a third said they strongly agreed that all that the Bible teaches is true. So notice that, you know, even though you might look at this and say, well, it's over half, but, but then as you parse that down, you get a little bit more accurate understanding of, of where some of those who say they go to church and they would say they were Christians, what they're saying about the Bible. Now, I don't need to compare that to, obviously, on the other side, for unbelievers, the statistics are way higher, which we would expect. But, but here's the issue. What about when you have people in the pews, in the sanctuaries, kind of echoing this discontinence with this? The third statement that they ask related to this uh, was simply this. The Bible has authority to tell us what to do. So the Bible has authority to tell us what, they, what to do. 52% uh, of those who said they're Christians agree with this. So again, you're talking about half which says there's another half that kind of question this. Does it really have authority to tell you what to do in every area of life? Out of that 52% that said they agreed, only about a quarter strongly agreed with that statement. So the researchers said if you compare this to the last survey two years ago, you have an increasing amount of those who say they're evangelical Christians questioning the authority and nature of Scripture, that the trend is that keeps going up. Now, at the same time, that goes up in our world, but we would expect that. But what do we do now when we see this creeping into the church, a questioning of the nature and authority of Scripture, something that was one of the key doctrines that came out of the Protestant Reformation that was restored so look at me at 2 Timothy this morning. And in this passage before us, as Paul is writing to uh, this younger pastor, Timothy, uh, giving him godly wisdom and advice on how to lead the church in Ephesus, uh, we have four attributes of the scriptures that are mentioned. In other words, four non-negotiables, things that are unchanging about the word of God. And these were restored in the Protestant Reformation or following it. Uh, they were not discovered in the Protestant Reformation. They've always been a part of Scripture. And I, and I would argue that based on these statistics I shared with you, they need to be restored uh, because we're starting to see them disappear slowly. So look at me at verse 16. Very familiar verse. I think every Christian would be great to have this verse memorized. Uh, but notice the first really four words in the verse, all scripture is God breathed. And we should take like a pause there, a break, and just let that settle in. Paul's telling Timothy, all scripture is God breathed. And so in thinking of attributes or characteristics that describe the Bible as a whole, the first one is simply the authority of the Bible. That the Bible does have authority. Uh, and now we need to consider, well, what does that authority cover? What does that look like? And so when Paul says all authority is God-breathed, we have that concept of it's from the very breath of God to us. So we're soon getting into flu season, and, and all of us know how we react. If someone is coughing sitting next to you, you're kind of like, gee, could you cover your mouth? Could you cough the other way? Well, why? 
Well, we realize their breath is the very breath that's coming out of them. It has, it has germs, it has things in it. But we should think in a healthy way, God saying his word is God breathed. It's straight from God to us. And we know there's been a human instrument in that process who recorded, wrote it down for us. But, but that does not negate it is coming directly to us. His, his breath, his very word. And so one of the things that becomes very clear as Christians, which is slipping today, is to disobey the Bible, is to disobey God, because it is God's breath. So when we speak of the authority of the Bible, traditionally that's meant we talk about the divine inspiration of Scripture. So when we know when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, the New Testament wasn't completed. So primarily when he was saying all Scripture is God-breathed, the major canon he had was the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean we can't read this and apply it to everything now in light of a completed 66 books that we have, that it does apply to the Bible in its entirety. Very similar in Revelation 22, you have a warning in verses 18 and 19 where we're not to add anything or take away anything from God's word. Now, we understand that warning specifically relates to the book of Revelation, the, the message that John received, but it's equally true of all of Scripture. And the reason is because it's not of man's origin, but it comes from God. And so we're aware, I know some of you who work in the field of, of medicine know, every field has its own vernacular and vocabulary. So even though we might not use that vocabulary if we were talking to someone who has no medical background, when we are talking to people who are in the same field as us, we use a certain vocabulary. And the same is true as Christians. There should be a familiar vocabulary we have when we talk about divine inspiration. And we're kind of looking at those who have gone before us who have helped summarize that well, whether it be the Protestant Reformation or centuries after. And that would be simply we talk about the scriptures being inerrant and infallible. So inerrancy means that the words from God in the original manuscripts are perfect and without error. Now, the reason I want to stress that and clarify that is you may have noticed sometimes you're reading your Bible and you may see a little footnote that might say something like, uh, this verse is missing from earlier manuscripts. Or you might find sometimes in the NIV you're reading and it jumps from verse 23 to 25. And there's no verse 24, but you look at the bottom of the page and it will say verse 24, you know, it says this, but it may have been a later edition. Well, what that's telling us is there are some places in the Bible where we have what might be scribal editions or differences in spelling or in numbers where there's a, a, a question mark that never touches major teachings or anything like that. And so we should be aware when we speak of inerrancy, we're, we're recognizing there are these question marks certain things where maybe in an earlier manuscript, the verse is shorter, and somewhere along the way, 
possibly someone add a little commentary to it to try to make it clearer, but that does not affect the inerrancy of God's word. But not only is God's word inerrant and has authority, we speak of it as being infallible. Now, what infallibility means is that when you read the scriptures with the assistance and desire to know God and the assistance of the Holy Spirit, it will never lead you into falsehood because it's true. It's from God. Now, notice the, the care in defining that. That doesn't shut the door on. You can have false teachers because they're taking the Bible, not seeking to understand it truthfully, but to twist it and manipulate it. But that's on them. That's not because God's word will lead us into error. And we can see that just revealed by these surveys, that that is slipping now, even within the church. And I think sometimes it's because we don't address issues like, well, why, you know, why does my verse sound different from yours when you're reading it? Or why do I have this footnote, you know, that this is missing? Well, we need to address those things and address those in a way that, again, never calls into question the inerrancy or infallibility of Scripture. But then there are two other terms that often are used traditionally. We speak of verbal and plenary inspiration. That in other words, the, the very words in Scripture and every word is God-breathed, not, not just some. So you notice that one of the statements they asked in that survey is, is the Scriptures like other ancient sacred writings where sometimes you have myths and other things included? Verbal and plenary inspiration says that that is not true of Scripture. We, we don't have a mix of, of different myths, things like that woven in. Now, does the Bible record things that are not what are God's desire? Absolutely. So, for example, you read of David having numerous wives, Solomon having numerous wives. That's merely a statement God's recording that is historically accurate, it doesn't mean God is saying, well, this is fine with me, and that's why I put it in the Bible. Because the Word of God is very consistent in what it teaches about marriage. So notice when we think of verbal and plenary, everything in it has been preserved and watched over by God. So we can be certain that when we read this book, we have a completed revelation. So unlike the Mormon church, unlike Jehovah Witnesses, we don't have some new revelation that has come after Christ and after Scripture that we need to look at because that is more complete. And so we see all of this is wrapped up into the authority of Scripture. Um, you can turn with me to the book of Second Peter, and Second Peter uh, also echoes and affirms the same truth uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 19 through 21. You have another apostle saying, this is what marks the scriptures, the authority of scripture. So in 2 Peter 1, you go down with me to verses 19 through 21. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so you have Peter talking about verbal plenary inspiration. Um, that last phrase when he says they were carried along, it's actually a nautical term that would refer to a, a ship that, that's moving and being directed to its port, its destination. So you have a God who didn't just give the word and like verbally do a shout out and then didn't monitor and guard the writing of his word and how it has come down to us throughout history. Because when you think about it, you know, the scriptures were written ultimately by God, but by 40 different human authors over a time span of 1,500 years. So the only way it could show the consistency and coherency that it does, if you have a God who not just gave the word, but preserved it and guarded it. So we talk about the divine inspiration of scripture, which echoes the authority of scripture. And then we also talk about the authority of the Bible is self-authenticating. So this was a very big issue in the Protestant Reformation. You had the Catholic Church, the church that was the only church in Luther's day, saying that the, the Bible had authority, but the Bible's authority came from the church. So in other words, even today, if you look carefully at official Catholic doctrine, they would say the Bible has authority because the church has declared it has authority. The reformers came along and said, wait a minute, we need to go back to what Scripture says. If, if all Scripture is God-breathed, it has authority because it comes from God. It's self-authenticating authority. And the church merely affirms that it does not establish the authority of Scripture. That's a very big distinction. You, you don't leave here saying, well, the, the Bible has authority because pastor told us. Or, you know, New Hope community believes it does, so therefore it does. You leave knowing it has authority because God said it. Whether you believe it or not, its authority is self-authenticating. And so if you look at, at first, uh, excuse me, in 2 Timothy again, chapter 3, Paul sort of reels this in verses 10 and 11 when, when he says, well, Timothy, you, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. In other words, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, my life, because you know me, reflects that my life is immersed in the scriptures, that the authority of scripture permeates my response to my circumstances. That's how you know that you believe in the authority of scripture. Do you see it as binding on, on all areas of life? Not just Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. Not just when you're in your home, but when you're out in the community, when, when you're in the workplace. Does the word of God govern all of that. Now, obviously, you can't talk about the Protestant Reformation without mentioning Martin Luther. So Martin Luther would appear before the Diet of Worms, 
And, and he would appear before this council because he was teaching and questioning that the authority of God is not from the church, but the authority of God's word is from his word. And so you're saved by grace, not works. Well, this infuriated the church of his day. So they summoned Luther to appear before them, defend this. Um, so he appeared before them. He brought all of his major writings, everything, had them all stacked up before them. He spent one day explaining all of this. The officials said, um, you can either recant of everything you've said and everything you've written, or you will be excommunicated from the church. Luther asked for one day to consider his response. And so he spent the next night in prayer. When he appeared before the Diet of Worms, he said these famous words, I, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. And with that, he would not only be excommunicated, but he would live as an exile uh, for many years as he continued to preach and teach this message of the authority of God's word and salvation by grace. It is evident today that we have far fewer people who say they're Christians who would be willing to say, my, my will is captive to the word of God, to the authority of God's word. But let's move on in 2 Timothy 3 to a second particular attribute, uh, and that is simply the clarity of the Bible. Uh, maybe something we take for granted, that although there are passages in the Bible that are challenging to read, uh, we have to do maybe background work, overall, the Bible is meant to reveal God to us in a manner, in a language that we can understand. So again, think of the Protestant Reformation. What you had was the, the church of its day was, was doing mass and teaching God's word in Latin, which was not the common vernacular of the people. And, and so they couldn't understand what was being read. And Luther and others were saying that the Bible should be in the language of the people. What, what good is it if they can't read it and understand it, if they can't have the clarity of Scripture? So notice in 2 Timothy 3, you see in verse 10, once again, Paul says, You, however, know all about my teaching. He's saying, Timothy, you, you've heard me teach. My, my instructions about God's word are clear. In other words, God's word is not intended to confuse us. And in fact, I think sometimes our difficulty with it is so simple. And so straightforward. It's not that we don't understand what it's saying. We, we don't like what it's saying. So Paul says, look, you, you know my teaching. You know my instruction. Notice verse 14. He then says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. So continue to take the clarity of Scripture, the Word of God. Uh, continue to grow in that. Then notice verse 15, where he says, and how from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Augustine made a, a very interesting comment related to the clarity of Scripture. Uh, he said this, uh, the Bible is shallow enough for a baby to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And what he was saying by that is there is something in God's word for every age. 
And so even here for Timothy, when you think of his background, his mother and grandmother who were, were strong believers, we know, that, that he, even though he, he wasn't born a Christian, at one point he became a believer. But, but any child at an early age can begin to grasp the basic teaching of Scripture, that God created them, that God loves them, uh, that God showed his love for them. That those are things that in the Old Testament, where the people of Israel commanded, teach these things to your children. Talk about them in, in different conversations. What that was really saying is the Bible is intended to be understood. It is clear enough, as Augustine put it, for even a baby to wade into. But it's deep enough that as you age, you continue to get more and more out of the scriptures. The clarity of the Bible is what's often called special revelation. So if you kind of think right now we're in probably peak leaf season time in New Hampshire, uh, general creation reveals to us that God exists. Does not tell us necessarily that he loves us. Does not tell us anything about Jesus Christ. Special revelation, which is through the living word, Jesus Christ, and the written word, the scriptures, is intended to draw us to salvation. And Paul references this, interesting, in second in 1 Corinthians, a church that was in a major city that prided itself on having like very articulate philosophers come in and teach people. Paul would reverse that and say, you know, God's wisdom is not the world's wisdom. Uh, what sounds foolish to us, God has revealed to us through his scriptures. And it is through the scriptures that by God's Holy Spirit, we are drawn to understand not just God exists, but God loves us, that he provided Christ to die for our sins. And so even as Paul will tell Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season, he tells him, don't forget to teach your people the clarity of Scripture. But let's move on to a third attribute, and that is simply the necessity of the Bible. Um, and a question for us to think about, you know, is there anything that the Word of God is not absolutely necessary for? So if it is necessary, how necessary is it and for what? And so let's kind of take that first question. Uh, the scriptures are not necessary to know that God exists. You don't need the Bible or anything to tell you God exists. Paul says in Romans 1, that's what creation does. It shouts out to you God exists. It renders everybody without excuse for not worshiping him as they should. So you don't need the scriptures to know that God exists. You actually don't need the scriptures to know that there is a right and a wrong. Because implanted in us, hardwired spiritual DNA, is we have a conscience. Now, that conscience is hardened by sin, it's twisted, but, but there's no excuse. And you can see this even in our world today when you people read about what happened in Thailand. You know, the natural response is that it's awful, that that's evil. They don't need to be told, do you think it's good or bad? We just know it's wrong. So you don't need the scriptures for that. 
which which solves that problem then when someone likes to debate with you. You know, what about the person who lives somewhere where they have no church, they've never seen a Bible, they're without excuse. The evidence is there. But you do need the scriptures, absolutely, in order to become a Christian. You, you need to have those shared with you, the gospel. And you need the scriptures to also be able to grow in Christ and know what God's will is for your life. And so look with me at verse 15 in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul speaks to that. Notice what he says about Timothy, how from infancy you have known this holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So someone doesn't have to own a Bible, but they do need to have someone explain from the scriptures, what is the gospel? What is the good news? Why, why are you a sinner, sinner condemned? How, how is that sin paid for? You need the scriptures for that. And Paul looks back in Timothy's life and says, Timothy, this scriptures made you wise, not in your own eyes, but through God working through them for you to become a believer in Christ. But then notice as well in verse 16, you know, the scriptures are necessary and needed for us to grow in Christ. And so you have four key purposes in scripture. The scripture is useful. Probably uh, another accurate way to put that, it's profitable. It's profitable for these things in your life and in mine. For, for simply first teaching, instruction, doctrine. Now you know right away that if the authority of Scripture is questioned increasingly today, if the clarity of Scripture is increasingly questioned today, then you're going to have far fewer people thinking it's worth reading or looking at. And that's falling prey not to just outside the church, but even within the church. Uh, you know, kind of, I read an article that was written a number of years ago, simply, does doctrine matter? And for a lot of people, even Christians, I kind of think doctrine theology is, is for like that group in your church that kind of is sort of the nerdy group. You know, they, they're just kind of into theology. They, they love to read that stuff. But, but the average person, the average Christian doesn't need to, to focus on that. Well, that completely is contrary to what Scripture teaches. Theology is simply the study and discussion of God. And that should be what's on the heart and lips of every believer. We, we want to know God. So notice it's for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, that, that phrase thoroughly equipped comes right out of the culture in Paul's day. And what you often had in certain communities was a very rich patron who would on their own, take on the financial responsibilities to, to outfit and produce like, like a, a dramatic presentation. They'd pay for the costumes, they'd, they'd pay the actors, they'd rent the facility, they would foot the whole bill. And so he uses that term to say, that's what scripture does for us. It fully and properly prepares us to live for Christ. So notice that although we are saved by grace, that we need the scriptures to grow 
in that saving and sanctifying grace. Well, there's one final attribute that comes not last in the list, but really rests on the previous three. So we've talked about the authority of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the necessity of Scripture. The final one is the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, in other words, that what we have here, if the Scriptures thoroughly equipped you for every good work, then what we're saying is it is in God's Word that we find anything addressed that relates to matters of faith and practice. So, so if I want to live for Christ, I, I need to know the Scriptures. It has everything I need related to living out my faith and how I am to conduct myself as a Christian. And, and notice with saying that, it is sufficient even for the worst of times. Because I didn't have us read, but chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, are all about your living in the last days. Like, you're going to have people who don't want to listen to sound doctrine. You're going to have people who will pursue every direction but God. In other words, if you had to pick a worst-case scenario, that's it. Even in that situation, more so is the Bible sufficient. And I think that should be of great encouragement to us. You know, if it was like, well, the Bible's sufficient if, you know, your world is tranquil and people are going to church and more people are affirming the authority of Scripture, well, then it's, it can handle that. But this is saying, pick the worst case scenario. Pick even what it's going to look like maybe 20 years from now. The Lord doesn't return. And those statistics I shared with you are going to be increasingly going in the other direction. God's word is still sufficient for that. And once again, Paul didn't feel that that was just a message for Timothy. In Romans, he tells us that God's word is given to encourage us, to give us endurance and hope. Now, by saying all that, it's very careful. The sufficiency of Scripture doesn't mean you don't need to read any other book but the Bible. So if you have a job where you're like Gene, were a machinist, if others had positions you had, you needed to do other studying. You needed to read up other things. The Scripture is sufficient for matters of faith and practice. But if you're in a different profession, you, you better read those books. You know, I want to know when I go to see my cardiologist, not, not that he just knows the Bible, I want to know that he went to med school. I want to know that he studied the heart, that he knows or she knows what they're talking about. But as we seek to follow Christ, the word of God is sufficient. So in a world where we're seeing that changing, once again, it says to us, we, we need to look back in order that we can move forward, personally, as well as as a church. Well, many people at least may know something about the Protestant Reformation, the anniversary of that, October 31st. But there was another anniversary that just passed this week that probably far few people even thought about. October 6th, Thursday, was the anniversary of William Tyndale's death. Now, William Tyndale was the guy who was living in England and this was his goal. He wanted to translate the Bible into English for the people of England. Well, the church would have nothing to do with that. 
And so he was martyred for that. In, in his work to translate the Bible, which he did, put it into English, he became, again, a fugitive, had to live underground. Uh, he sent these Bibles out in, in packages of other goods, like contraband, had them hidden and shipped out. Uh, they were burned, but then, again, the burning made a demand. More people wanted Bibles, so he was able to produce more. But eventually he was betrayed, unfortunately, by someone close to him. On October 6th, he was executed. Uh, he was first strangled to death and then burned. His only crime was he wanted to have the scriptures put in the hands of the average person. And with any execution, he was given an opportunity to say something first. He would not recant. And he simply said this, I pray that God would open the eyes of the king. And with that, he entered heaven. Interesting, if you know your history, within two years after that, the king of England would grant permission for the King James Bible to be printed in English. So here we have a reminder to us, wow, what we, sh we should think of Scripture when we talk about its attributes in a world that is denying those attributes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we not just say we know these things, but may be evidence in our time spent reading the scriptures, meditating upon them, and praying them, that we actually do believe these attributes are true. In Jesus' name, amen.